I work as a curator and creative director. I worked on a range of different projects, a range of different sort of scales and with a range of different partners as well. On one end, uh, I work in more sort of DIY capacity as one part of the UK-based video game collective Wild Rumpus. We're a group of people who put on a lot of video game events and parties. I'm predominantly focused on alternative video games and independent video games. Um, I've also been curator of video games at the Victorian Albert Museum in London and uh, recently was guest director for Now Play This Festival at Somerset House. Marie, you're, that's so prestigious. I'm so impressed. How did you start? Did Were you a gamer as a child? Is this something that's always been important to you? I find it interesting that when people are applying for jobs or people are talking about their working games, how many people sort of feel this need to cite that they were somebody who played games as a child? Like, don't worry, I'm passionate and I'm from this space and I'm 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 allowed to be in this area because I played games as a kid. And it's like, actually, that doesn't have to define like the validity and your connection or your interest in this space. It's totally fine to have just sort of been interested in games sort of when, as, you, as you got older. But um for me, I did I did play games as a kid. My dad was the person who brought the Super Nintendo um, into our household, and those are my most nostalgic experiences, sort of playing games as a kid. But um, games were something that I I sort of drifted away from in my late teens and early twenties, and I do sort of think a large part of that is perhaps due to the fact that at that point in time, the direction of where games were going commercially was perhaps further away from the sorts of games and the sort of aesthetic of games that really appealed to me that was obviously sort of very prolific on the snares. The, the one when the culture was sort of telling me like, this isn't really where you're supposed to be. Um, and so it wasn't really until my mid-20s when I was working in film that I became aware of the resurgence and the revival of like this independent game scene. And it was in that that it suddenly became apparent to me that Actually, this video games is not just sort of this commercial industrial space for entertainment. This is a creative medium and discipline where artists and creative practitioners are exploring like their own ideas and their identities. And um, and and it was through that that it suddenly dawned on me, hang on a minute, this is a space that actually I do really care about and I'm really interested in. And so it was a lot of the work that was happening sort of in the early 2010s that pulled me over into games and made me realize that it was a really fascinating and interesting creative space to work in. Actually, it reminds me of when you talk about women in in programming as well, that there's this story of like, well, were you always into programming? Well, kind of, you know, like maybe. um, But the the thing that that makes, you know, boys get into technology and maybe games as well is that they see it as a fun hobby. And there's always this thing, I don't know if there's a parallel here, but there's always this thing in technology where it's like, get women into technology for their career, like get them serious about it, get them taking it really seriously and learning it and getting really good at the exams and all that. And it's like, well, that's not why boys are into computers. It's because they had a brilliant time when they were five playing on a computer game. And they, you know, it was like a fun hobby that was a real enjoyable, free, recreational, creative activity. Um, And I feel like maybe it's a bit like that with games. I think there is this quite pervasive, I guess, sort of myth or or sort of um, ideal that we've held up for a long time about um, sort of 
who, what, what your history and background has to be as a games developer, as a games designer, or as somebody working within this medium. And it's it's something that I think people are moving to sort of dispel at the moment. But there is this sort of idea of um, if you're going to ask somebody sort of how they got into games, that they're going to tell you that they grew up like with a ZX Spectrum and that they programmed games when they were five years old. And, and it in a way, it's like it's, it's great and fine if that is the way and that was your routine. That's wonderful and lovely for you. But if it wasn't, it's totally okay. It's totally fine to come to things sort of when you're older, like to, to not have had that that sort of history with the medium. And I think as much as it's, it tells this very romantic idea of following this lifelong passion and pursuit, there is an element, I think, there that is slightly gatekeeping. It is this sort of identity of like, well, if you weren't there, if you weren't into this as a child, then this isn't really where you're supposed to be. And you're not quite as an authentic, um, you're not quite, your, your space here is not quite as, as valid as people who were. And I think I really value actually the stories of people who are like, look, I just didn't know or didn't really care about games until like, I was almost goodness maybe even in your 30s and I think it's really valuable to sort of help dispel that myth and to talk about a much wider range of routes and avenues into into games and I love that you're particularly qualified to talk about this because you as you said you did the world rumpus stuff they just looked like the most amazing party it was just like a fantastic celebration of having fun without any kind of cultural baggage or expectation that you would be from a particular background or anything but then you also have done this you know, as I suppose some people might say high culture stuff of working yeah. with the Victoria and Albert Museum. So you, you've you've been on both sides of that. Yes, feeling as though you're sort of spanning these two ends of like, um, like when we first started doing World Rumpus and when I was first doing that work, it was not it was not something that we called curation. I didn't refer to those events and projects as exhibitions because the venues, the format and the work we were showing doesn't reflect what we're told is culture with a capital C or what are the arts with a capital A. And I feel as I feel much more confident and comfortable being able to say that that is curation and that is obviously and it, it is culture and it is curation. And I feel much more confident being able to say that now more legitimized, having been sort of somebody who has worked at an institution like the VA. But it's something that I think a lot of people sort of began to, to realize and to value their work differently and understand that different new and emerging creative mediums do need different approaches to the way that they're displayed and the way that they're presented. They need different public spaces and different formats and forums for people to engage with them. And a lot of those things are not necessarily going to look like or reflect what what we're used to and what we've sort of seen before. And so I'm really... I really do value the fact that I've had the ability to work at these two extremes at this one end where we didn't feel this pressure to make our events look or be a certain way. We just created them. One in the vision of the events that inspired us, which were things like Baby Castles and Gamma and um, Copenhagen Game Collective um, and Hand-Eye Society. We didn't feel this pressure to present the events or present the work necessarily in a certain way. It was all just sort of born from what do the, what is what is working and what do we want to do? Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, a lot of the work sort of the VNA is obviously heavily influenced by the way that more traditional exhibitions and museums host and and showcase work. And so I'm really, really thankful to have to have had experience working at these two extremes. And my real interest at the moment is like how do we how do we bridge the gap between those two? And I don't say that to necessarily say how do we split the difference and create something that's a mediocre sort of halfway sort of like, okay, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And um, we've kind of ended up with something that is neither as exciting as either end. But that there is generally something new and interesting in that sort of middle space to 
to take not just lessons from these emerging different cultural spaces that games exist within, but and, and other more traditional spaces that games have existed in like the arcade or land parties or esports events, but also thinking how that, what happens when we do think of that through the lens of more traditional museums and exhibitions and galleries. So where, where have you landed at with this question? Have you seen anything that you feel is approaching this new territory that seems very exciting? There's a lot of people who are working within this space, not necessarily from games, but I think it all goes really well and hand in hand with the current focus on experiential experiences and projects such as, or, or sort of work such as escape rooms and spaces that allow for different a different range of sort of interactive and participatory experiences. And so it's not necessarily to say that all of that work necessarily connects literally to video games, but there is huge parallels, I think, between what people are looking towards from those experiences and different ways that we can create new um, public forms to engage with games. And some of the, although that's it, some of the projects that I'm working on at the moment, that it's too early to perhaps talk about them in depth because, because they're sort of quite new. It's like existing in this space between, have we made and conceived of something that is ingenious and innovative and is going to be is going to really work in a really exciting way or if we made an absolute mess. <laughs> but that, that in a way is, I think there's a lot of sympathy towards people working within that space, um, creating different embodied sort of physical public experiences at the moment. Um, and as I say, that feels like it drives towards sort of XR and um, immersive experiences at the moment. Well, like what really is a game? If we try and think of it as an object and we just have, then we think about it as this one static concept. Whereas if we allow ourselves to think of games instead as performances, then we sort of obviously realize that it's not just the game itself that is critical, but it's also the person who's playing with it. It's also the context of the person who's playing. It's also their experiences. It's about what environment are they playing with and what sort of technology or hardware are they engaging with it? With And you have all of these other variables and factors, which means that no game ever reveals itself or presents itself as the same sort of object, and I say that in scare quotes, sort of twice. No two people will play a game in the same way. No one person will necessarily have the same experience of a game sort of the multiple times that they might go back to it and engage with it. And for me, that's why it's really interesting to think about it as a performance, that any singular video game, yes, we can have this sort of broad cultural consensus as to what that game is, but there's also infinite ways that 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 game can manifest and it can reveal itself. And so when we're thinking about bringing games into public spaces, we do have to ask ourselves, like, which performance are we interested in presenting? Are we looking to create a performance that is interactive, that allows an audience to engage with that? And if we are, what sort of factors do we need to think about with the environment that we're bringing that work in? Like, how does the, the pressure of having an audience present change somebody's experience? How does the time considerations of the fact that you might not be able to sit on your sofa and play that game for eight hours if it's presented in a, in a gallery where maybe you're going to have sort of five or ten minutes of playing it? So, yes, we can foster and um, choreograph, in a way, performances in public spaces, but maybe there's also sort of performances that we want to present that have been sort of historically significant. Maybe there's a specific playthrough of a game that is actually hugely relevant or 
maybe we as a curator want to sort of choreograph or create a specific version or focus on that game to be able to reveal a different aspect of it. Because when we're thinking about what we're exhibiting, we're not just exhibiting one definitive idea of a game. As a curator, you have to think about which which version of this game are we actually presenting? Which performance is it? Let's say there is a game, a specific game that you've got in mind that you want to have some interpretation of. Does this audio of that game then generate new art? So it becomes a creative response to the game. There was something that one of the curators said to me at the V&A, which kind of stuck, stuck with me and haunted me a little bit. And it was... One of the things they sort of said to me as a curator, they said, you know what your problem is, Marie? You don't want, you, you want to make art, like that you're trying to be an artist. And I reject that in a sense that I definitely don't want to be an artist. I really, I like to work within sort of a set of constraints. And I kind of like the fact that the work I do almost feels like trying to work out a puzzle of how to, how to create almost like the physical embodiment of an, of, of an essay or a, docu- a documentary within sort of a physical space. What it felt to me like they were saying did feel like a kickback almost to the fact that working with this medium, I think, means as a curator, you have to have much greater engagement you have much you have to you have to have much greater sort of impact or control over the work I think to make things that are really meaningful that you are creating interpretations and versions or responses to the game for me sort of I approach sort of exhibiting them creating sometimes multi-channel video installations sometimes creating sort of physical different sort of interpretive displays um and if if more traditionally when we're thinking about museums like you think about like there is this sort of Reels like it's almost sacred to not don't interfere with either the artist's work, don't interfere with the object. Like you need to be sort of as objective as possible. Whereas I'm actually really having a huge control often over the game or the way that it's displayed, and I'm having a huge sort of intervention within that, which feels like it's breaking some sort of sacred sort of curatorial code. But in all honesty, I think actually for me, in the way that I want to approach curation of video games, that that's 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 what I think is actually more effective for people. I think it's a much more interesting way to approach games. One of the installations that I was really proud of that we created for the V&A exhibition was one that was for the video game Kentucky Route Zero. And the thing that we were really sort of keen to present with this game is um, being sort of a work of sort of interactive fiction was thinking about, and, and as a game as well, that is heavily influenced um, by sort of theatre design and set design. Like there's really amazing narratives to be told around that game with its connection to interactive fiction and ergodic literature and sort of theatre and set design. And so instead of just having that game be played interactively by an audience, what we created in collaboration with the designers instead was a a short video clip. Um, So it was a multi-channel video installation across three separate screens. And they showed an excerpt from the end of the second chapter of the game. And on one screen, we just had the playthrough, a pre-recorded playthrough, as you would see it if you were playing the game. So you see the character sort of walking along, choosing different narrative choices. But we wanted to also push people to think about this through that theatrical lens and to think about the other systems at play. And so alongside this, we had 
the branching dialogue tree. So um, the the game uses twee sort of part of twine to create branching narratives. And so we had sort of running alongside the excerpt of the games, the visuals that showed you, okay, look, when this branching narrative is being chosen, here are the other choices. So you can see the game design tool that was used to create those narratives. You see the other paths that you can go on. So you can see what essentially we were trying to convey to you. It's like, here is the script. So if we're talking about this as theater, over here we're seeing the production, but here is the script that is sort of hidden from view normally. And the third screen that we had was one that was looking at, as we sort of thought about it, like the set design and understanding that whilst the game is two-dimensional and your view is two-dimensional of sort of the character moving back and forth, that this is a game that is created within, um, within Unity, within sort of three dimensions and within Blender as well. So we had this sort of three-dimensional view that also allowed people to see what actually was happening within the within the sort of blender within the 3D modeling, how the 2D scene was actually created. And for us, that was sort of showing people, okay, here's the set design. And so across these three screens that you're looking at, you're we're trying to push you to think about this as theater. We're trying to show you these different layers and different sort of reveal a different part of that game, which ultimately for me, it's thinking, what do you gain from watching two to three minutes of this sort of display, which sort of breaks down the visuals in a way that you will not see it when you're playing versus what it would potentially mean to allow somebody to come in and watch somebody play for sort of two to three minutes or to play for themselves. Like what do each of those two experiences teach you? Um, and in more traditional terms, the idea of allowing people to come in and play that game is conservatively, we sort of think, oh, well, that's the thing that you should do as a curator. You should be hands off and you should let people play it because it's intended to be interactive. But I don't, I think, I think there's sort of this fallacy about interactivity. The interactivity is not necessarily, because games are interactive, doesn't mean that we have to play them. So we have to understand that there are multiple, multiple different iterations of that game that can be presented. Um, and so for me as a curator, I sort of termed it as like thinking the curator almost has to be the player, that you have to have this intervention and say, okay, I'm going to push you to have this, or I'm going to try and urge you to have this sort of experience with this work. And so that, that is very much what I mean when I'm saying about how we can use the physical space, how we can use different audio, different visuals, how we can create different sort of constructs to, to actually present something very different about that work that actually is not just, on the one hand, it's also really valuable to gain and know about that, but also it's just really fun to be in a space with large projections that are showing you and immersing you in that work in a way that you can't get at home or you can't get sort of in, in private spaces. And so that's the area that I'm really interested in exploring is creating those sort of more physical experiences that, that either build on or learn from games, um, but also convey and communicate something about them. Your sort of passion comes across when you're talking about it as well. I can completely see why it would be exciting to show something um, in a in a gallery context, I guess, that hasn't really been seen in that way before. Or, you know, I know it has a little bit, but not really extensively explored. Yeah. So you're sort of saying this thing wasn't really designed to be shown in a gallery in the way that a sculpture yeah. or a painting was. Um, how do we show it, in, or, or a museum even, but how do we show it as, how do we show the things about it that are important? And then you yeah. get to choose which bits that you think are important. Um, and then you sort of, I suppose it's like a feedback thing with the audience where you help you know they help you to sh to decide what's important too as you yeah. share it as a bit of a backwards and forwards and there's just such an obvious thing that sort of got pointed out that as we were developing the exhibition and working with so we worked with some really great av designers at squint opera and really great architects at Penilla or studio and it was great to be able to collaborate with them and 
one of the things that we sort of kept coming back to as well was to really obvious point that, um, okay, so an exhibition is a physical space that people, um, or traditionally sort of a physical, it can also be a digital space, but a space where people go into and have an experience in, um, in a sort of embodied, an embodied experience within a space. And that means that you have autonomy about where you're going to look, where you're going to move to. How do we get you to focus on what we want you to focus on? How do we get you to, to be directed in certain areas? And it was like, hang on a minute. Isn't this kind of the same as a video game? Isn't this kind of the same as level design that we need to think about how we use the sort of environment around us to direct people's attention and to get them to look in different spaces? And so like one of the things we didn't want with the exhibition design was for it to be sort of too, to feel too cliche, to be sort of like, oh, look, we've got pixels and um, that means that this is video games, right? That's the language. But there were really, the designers did a really great way um, of looking towards video games as, and, and using sort of different, really sort of subtle and interesting um, ideas from video games and bringing that into the exhibition design. Um, like Julia, our um, 2D designers who did sort of like the graphics and print, like for the big sort of text when people go into um, a new sort of section of the exhibition, they create a sort of these giant glowing cubes. And again, it's like, okay, well, in video games, if there's normally sort of something people want you to focus on, then it might be sort of a light shone in it. It might be that there's sort of additional movement or animation placed around that object that guides your attention. Or it might be that sound sort of directs you into a certain way of looking or a certain way of being. And um, unlike the architects as well, created this really, um, in the first room of the exhibition, they used fabric gauze across the different layers of the room. So when you went in, you could actually view the full depth of the room and you can see sort of all of the different installations that are further back, but you can't quite see them. They're not quite in focus. They're sort of grayed out because they're further and further back within the exhibition space because there's these layers of fabric are sort of sitting in the way. And again, that was something that took inspiration from, from video games and sort of how you can create this sense of sort of depth in different spaces. And it's like, okay, well, you don't render everything in front of you. Everything further away is going to be a little bit blurry. And that, again, encouraged you to be here and sort of focused in the present. But it means that you do have a hint about something that's coming up towards the end. You can see sort of like your objective or where you're working to and so um and I really I it's some of these things where it's just like people coming to the exhibition aren't necessarily going to pick up on this stuff but it feels really satisfying to work with a design team who are aware of those things and I'm bringing them into the design and maybe people don't have to be aware of it but it's just sort of such an obvious thing to be like hey level design and game design this is something that exhibition design should also be learning from um, and vice versa If I was to say to you, you can have anything you want and do anything you want, what would it? What would you do? I know exactly what I want and what I want to do where I am at the moment, and that's one of the projects that I'm currently developing. Which, actually, you know, two two projects that I've done sort of over the past sort of um, couple of years. Um, one was uh, when we were doing now play this um, back in 2020, and that was a year where obviously um, we very short notice had to transition that festival from being an, on, uh, from being an in-person festival to an online festival. And some of the most successful and um, I think rewarding events that we undertook with that was a series of virtual tours around um, 
sort of iconic locations from different video games. So we had Robert Yang take a group of people through um, the Black Mesa Research Facility from Half-Life. Um, and we also had Gareth Damian Martin taking people on um, landscape photography workshops through No Man's Sky. And it was just really, it's just really amazing to sort of see people be able to be in these spaces and repurposing them for different uses to interrogate that space differently. Um, and they weren't sort of experiences where we were inviting sort of millions of people. And it was like, let's let's just make sort of experiences for like 20 or so people that still fosters that sense of like um, what it means to feel like to be a group of people serendipitously at like an exhibition or a, on a guided tour. And um, and those projects, and I do have to sort of give credit as well to Everest Pipkin because it was their, it was specifically their writing about tours in Second Life that sort of, um, that sort of led us to um, undertaking th those projects. And so the work that I'm doing at the moment is really thinking about um, performance and creating physical spaces for games that is directly inspired by those those events that we undertook. Um, and as I said at the beginning of the interview, that the space that I'm in at the moment is the the concept where I'm at at the moment is something that people, somebody, nobody, nobody has definitely done before. And I've been really fortunate to work with a really great sort of collaborative team of architects, um, of games designers and of AV designers as well, just collaboratively think about how we can create the sort of space and concept that we want to. But I also go from sort of these moments of thinking, is this absolutely absurd and ridiculous or is this sort of, is this is this genius? But um, if there's one thing that I've learned over the past year, and the second project I was going to mention was hosting a party in a Google Doc. I'm going to share Google Doc, which I'm not going to go into. But that that is one of the projects that, having done all these big things like working for the VNA, working for Somerset House, the thing that most people are getting in touch with me about over the past year is about having the party in a spreadsheet. And what that taught me is that if I'm working in a space that I'm not sure if it's just me being absolutely like off my rocker and just having like not really knowing what on earth it is I'm doing or why I'm doing it, or if it feels like maybe it's genius, then that is probably a really good space to be in. So it's like, hey, just let yourself exist in this space between sort of what feels ridiculous and what feels inspired. Um, and I hope that's what I hope that's what this installation is. And I hope that we can find um, people to obviously financially support it but it is difficult working within a space that feels emergent and new because there's not established sort of funding models necessarily for this work there's not established sort of support systems um, in place for it but um, if anybody's listening and wants to chat to <laughs> chat to us and chuck some cash in our direction to do something potentially the genius or ridiculous then please do get in touch When it comes to sort of cultural support and cultural funding at video games, it feels like almost got leapfrogged a little bit. That it felt as though there was a lot of interest sort of beginning to build around um, supporting games sort of culturally. And then now, though, it feels so, like so much more of the sort of public cultural support is focused much more now on VR and XR. And it is really about how you work with sort of um, groundbreaking and sort of super emergent technologies. And for me, what's a little bit frustrating is that I feel that historically there is still so much to be explored with much more traditional tech. Like the stuff that I'm sort of looking at sort of working with at the moment is not really anything more sort of complex than necessarily like a LAN party, but 
the context or the nature of what we're developing and what we're sort of proposing isn't something that's been undertaken before, but it's equally not an area where there's been, where there is sort of a lot of cash being sort of um, put towards that work, that it doesn't fit within these sort of traditional historical models. And it also doesn't necessarily um, excite people from the perspective that we're going to use brand new sort of emerging technology, but there's just such huge um, space for being sort of creative and inventive with much more traditional, much more established sort of technology that's just not been repurposed or used in that way before. Going back to what I was saying about um, how creating um, exhibitions and installations and sort of experiences that allow people to explore games in this embodied physical spaces is something that's reflective of game design and level design. That is also me saying that it's also um, to create those works, you also need this sort of very broad creative skill set that... Um, like when, again, sort of when, when I'm in traditional museums, there is this hierarchy of the curator being at the top of the pyramid. This is where the ideas and things come down to. And once we've sought, once we've got all the objects sort of defined and the, the critical ideas defined, then we'll bring in an architect. And once the architects design the exhibition, then we'll bring in our AV designers and they'll create sort of maybe some interactives. And, and then we'll bring in this next tier of like 2D designers. Um, and But when we were, if we we're talking about how we create these installations that are not just an object with text but they are potentially different AV installations, different interactive installations, different immersive installations that we need this range of skill sets and we don't need them in this hierarchical staggered approach. You need those skills and you need those ideas at the beginning that curation cannot just be thought about as the intellectual thesis or idea at the beginning. Curation needs to also be the architectural design is also the AV design. And so for me, what I'm really interested in doing is making sure that when I'm developing exhibitions, and it's something that is very much part of the current project that, um, or pet project that I'm working on, is, is having that team from the get-go of working with architects from the beginning, of working with games designers from the beginning, of working with um, from, from the beginning of working with accessibility specialists from the beginning but not seeing this hierarchy or this this sort of approach but managing that process to ensure that you are creating something that does value those different sort of skills and experiences to be able to create something that that is good <laughs> it's not just okay this is the idea and how do we get to that it is also about allowing that collaborative process that is something that happens much more within I think we value much more within games um games design as a community we, we value the fact that games are we struggle with the idea of sort of the auteur sort of when presented in games it's like we understand that it takes I mean you are you do have independent and solo designers but it still takes a village there's still so many skills um that take to make a game and and that should be reflected in the way that we undertake other like curatorial and creative practices. But I think the thing that frustrates me sometimes is how much games is pushed at the moment. It feels like the conversation can only exist at these two extremes that we either sort of have to be really tackling um, these, and we should be tackling these really difficult, nuanced conversations about games. 
but how we then to counter that we go almost to the other end of the extreme of like okay well we need to show sort of almost how games has cured um this disease or how games can solve sort of the climate crisis and it's like okay you can exist in that space but also can we just accept that there's this huge middle ground where games can also be really boring and mundane and games just are a part of contemporary culture it doesn't have to be this sort of purely angelic medium to counter the fact that it's got negative aspects it's like we can embrace both of these things can be true but can we also just exist in the middle ground um and really sort of appreciate sort of the creative and cultural nuance that exists within this sort of central space because there's really fascinating conversations to be had there and we're foolish to ignore that but it's Thanks for listening to Art of Fury, the podcast. We really hope you're enjoying it. If so, please go to iTunes and give us a quick rating and review on there. It helps other people to find us. Remember, you can find us on Twitter as well. We are at Art of Fury pod on there. So please come and join the conversation. The music you've been listening to throughout this episode is from The Longest Road on Earth, which is a Raw Fury game, and the composer and performer in the music is Bea. See you next time. Let's see what we can create, what we can create.